please turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 31. It's the final chapter, uh, not in our Bibles, Brother Gary, but the final chapter in 1 Samuel. So we'll, Lord willing, finish this up tonight, and then next week mark, march right into uh, the, the book of 2 Samuel. And I've been kind of reviewing here in, in recent weeks uh, the themes of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and Mike, First and Second Chronicles, and kind of reviewing how they all fit together. Uh, we'll talk more about that over the next couple of weeks and be jumping back and forth a little bit. But brother, we remember that First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings they follow chronologically, right? And there's there's overlap with First and Second Chronicles. Um, we'll we'll come back to that a little bit along the way here um, tonight. Uh, Sister Carolyn, good evening. I don't know if I said good evening or not before, but good evening. We'll just have a private conversation at the door. Uh, tonight we're going to see the death of Saul. And so it goes back to that battle that uh, began a, a chapter or two back, and, and we see the death of Saul. And we'll be reminded tonight that Saul's death at this point in his life, Brother Art, it wasn't God's original plan, it wasn't God's desire. Uh, Saul's going to die uh, earlier in his uh, reign than the Lord desired. As a, it's as a result of his sin. We'll see that. You remember tonight that uh, Saul started out very well, right? He was chosen of God. Well, the people desired a king, and God chose Saul. And Mike, God, st uh, God started out well. Yes, he did. Saul started out very well, but it seems to me that as he progressed and uh, began to have some military victories. Uh, that he became more focused on himself and his own desires than on the Lord uh, and God's desires and, and began to disobey the Lord. And uh, along the way, you'll recall the Lord had Samuel to advise Saul that, hey, as a consequence of, of your sin, of your disobedience, uh, the, the, the kingdom is, is going to be taken away from you and, and given to another. And of course, the, the other is David, right? And as we get into 2 Samuel, we'll see uh, the focus uh, shifting more fully to David uh, and his reign as king. I'm going to pray. We'll jump in here tonight and see the end of Saul, uh, which uh, sort of paves the way or sets the stage for uh, David to enter in as king next. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, tonight uh, for your words. Lord, as we uh, look tonight at the consequence of Saul's sin, I pray, Lord, tonight that we'd be reminded that sin always has consequences. Lord, I pray that we'd be reminded tonight that you're a holy God, that you're a just God, that you do judge sin. And Lord, um, at times, uh, that judgment can include calling a man home. Lord, tonight, I, I do not believe that Saul lost his salvation, but uh, certainly he lost the privilege to continue serving you as uh, king of your people. Uh, he lost the privilege to continue living. Father, again, as we see this tonight, it's, it is shocking in a sense, many of the things we'll see tonight. But Lord, it, it, um, again, it's, it's a reminder. It's a reminder of the consequence of sin and the holiness of our God. Father, I thank you tonight that we can have a relationship with you despite your holiness and despite our sin, despite our sin in the face of your holiness, only because of Christ. Lord, thank you so much for that. 
Lord, I pray that you'll help me now as we look into your words for just these next few minutes. Help us to see that which you would have us to see. I pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we ready? Brother Art, we're ready? All right, let's jump in here. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 31. Again, it's the, it's the final uh, chapter uh, of the book. The Bible says this, Now the Philistines fought against Israel. This is the context. The Philistines fought against Israel. The men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in, in Mount Gilboa. And Richard, you have to look at that and say, well, it's pretty clear that in this particular battle, God is not giving a victory, not at this stage at least. Uh, we understand that God uh, at other times has supernaturally given military victories to Israel. Uh, God had given supernaturally military victories to Saul uh, early on in, in his reign and his walk. But uh, at this point, Mike, the, the scene is going to be more about judgment, justice and judgment. Uh, and so the Lord uh, gives the Philistines uh, the, the ability to uh, prevail uh, against Israel in this battle uh, at or near Mount Gilboa. Uh, verse 2, the Bible says the Philistines followed hard upon Saul uh, and upon his sons. And uh, what's being pictured here is their pursuit of him and, and their attack on him. And the Bible says the Philistines slew Jonathan. Who is Jonathan uh, to Saul? Who's Jonathan to Saul? son, right? So you see here that uh, Jonathan and two of his three other brothers are slain here, uh, Benadab and Mel Melchishua. Uh, three of Saul's sons uh, are, are slain. Uh, they're, they're killed in this battle uh, with the Philistines. And Brother Art, again, we, we know that God could have prevented this if he chose to, but uh, evidently he has not chosen to. Uh, he, he clearly intends for this uh, outcome of this battle to be a, a, a clear uh, judgment, a clear uh, indication of God's dissatisfaction with Saul uh, and Saul's sin. We see here in verse 3 that Saul is wounded. Now you remember this, right? Saul, uh, Saul takes an arrow, evidently, Brother Mike, and he's very concerned that he will suffer some great uh, embarrassment or uh, you know, just some unthinkable uh, type of embarrassment or insult uh, as the Philistines approach. He, he knows that they're going to kill him uh, unless the Lord uh, would uh, enter in at the last minute here and supernaturally allow him to prevail, but he's not expecting that at this point. And so uh, he decides that the best thing to do would be for him to die uh, before the Philistines kill him. And you see this here in verse 3, the battle went sore against Saul. The Lord allows this. And the archers hit him. He, he struck by an arrow, evidently. And he was sore wounded of the archers. Rich, I think he probably took more than one arrow. Uh, he's, he understands that he's uh, gravely wounded. He's not likely, it seems, to recover uh, from, from his wounds. In verse 4, the uh, Bible says, Then Saul unto his armor-bearer, the man who, uh, who, his assistant in battle, if you will, uh, Saul said unto his armor-bearer, uh, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith. That, Zach, what's he asking him to do? 
He's asking him to kill him, to finish him off so that the Philistines won't have the, the, the opportunity to do that. They won't have the opportunity uh, to have the pleasure uh, of killing him uh, and worse. We'll see later, uh, his worst fears actually do come true. They, uh, they, they insult him after he's dead in, in, in the worst sort of way. Uh, but his, his desire here is to avoid that. Uh, and so he asks this man to kill him. Zach, if he asks a man to kill him, he's essentially committing what? Suicide, yeah. I think we'd have to look at that and say that's, that's a great sin. Uh, think, Brother Ray, um, I understand the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not commit suicide, but certainly I think we'd have to look at that and say uh, to choose to take your own life either at your own hand or by commit, commanding someone else uh, to take your life at, at your command or, or any other way, uh, that'd be a great sin, right? What, what would be uh, a, sort of the, the sin at the root of that decision? What would be the sin or uh, sort of a theme? What would be at the root of that decision? Uh, what would, what, Gary? Thou, sh thou shalt not kill. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really murdering yourself, right? It's, a, it's an unjust taking of a life, in, in, in this case, uh, your own life, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, what's, what's behind that? Um, there's, there, obviously, there could be many things behind that, but I think a common theme that you'd point to in, in that decision is, is pride. I understand people get very depressed and make that decision. Uh, I understand there can be a lot of factors that go into that decision, but uh, just, just stop and think about how prideful it is uh, for us to decide when our life ends rather than just placing that in God's hands and uh, allowing him to continue to, to work in our lives as long as he chooses. Uh, it, it's, it's a terribly prideful decision. Now, I've heard people argue at, at different times that that's not a sin that God could forgive, that the decision to take your own life uh, would be just, just unforgivable and that someone could lose their salvation. Zach, I don't, I don't see that in Scripture. I've heard people argue that, and, and I'm sympathetic to that position in a sense because the sin is so great. Uh, it's so terrible. It's so very prideful. Uh, it's so anti-Christ. Uh, and yet, I understand, Mike, that any sin, no matter how, how grievous, how heinous, how great, uh, when, I, when I came to Christ, didn't his blood cover all of my sins, church? Yeah, all of them. Rich, you had a thought. You know what's interesting? After a person commits that sort of sin, they can't really repent. No, they can't repent of it. But um, let, me, let me ask you a question. If, if I commit, a, as a saved person, uh, if I commit a sin but don't repent of that sin, have I lost my salvation? I think we, we would argue not. But right, so, uh, you know, yeah, committing that sin, you, you would die uh, certainly in a place where your, um, your communion with the Lord, your, your walk with the Lord, your, your relationship with him uh, in that moment would suffer injury, right? In, in that moment, uh, it would certainly be harmed. But I understand in, in the next moment, because the blood of Christ does cover all sins, uh, I, you know, if that's not the case, if, if it's all sins except for suicide, I don't see it in my Bible. Uh, and if I did, I, I, I'd teach that, right? Uh, I, I, I'd teach that, but I, I don't see that. I, I see the blood of Christ as being sufficient uh, to cover all sins, no matter how heinous they are. And again, this, this would be a great one. Um, yes, that would harm my walk with the Lord in that moment, but I do not believe there's any sin that could harm 
my, my salvation. I know we just looked at the um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and, and talked about that, but um, <laughs> you know, putting that aside tonight, uh, I just don't see that this would be a basis for losing your salvation scripturally. It's certainly horrible. It's certainly sinful. And a believer ought not to do this, certainly. But we would, we, we would never argue that uh, this would cause one to lose uh, his or her salvation. You'll find people that will argue that with regard to Saul. I saw an article today uh, that, that, that made that argument. But it was a, a writer who was in a church that believed you can lose your salvation um, by sinning. Well, we certainly don't think that. Uh, we're, we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, and we say amen, amen. Of course, we don't want to find a license to commit this kind of sin in this truth. But, you know, we have to be honest also. If a person lost their salvation by sinning, we'd all lose our salvation, right? Yeah, and I've, I've asked people that take that position. Um, well, if, if you believe that you can sin enough to lose your salvation, at what point do you lose your salvation? And at what point would you know that? Is, is there a scale? Uh, what, what tips the scale? Uh, you, you know, it, it really doesn't make sense because we know that we're not saved that way in the first place by doing more righteousness than sin. Uh, and so the idea that we can lose our salvation by doing more sin than righteousness, it's not biblical. It's not logical. It really doesn't make that much sense at all. And so you know, I, I, don't, I don't teach that we can lose our salvation because I just don't think it's biblical. I understand good people take different positions, and, you know, we, we can be sympathetic, but I want to be biblical more, more than sympathetic, right? Anyway, so I think, I think we've, we've covered off on that. This is a great sin uh, against himself and, and, more importantly, against the Lord that Saul is committing here. Uh, verse 4, is we see it here. I can't remember if we read this. Saul said in his armor. Yes, we, we read this. Um, I don't think we read it all. Then Saul, verse 4, said in his armor bearer, draw thy sword, thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised, these uh, um, enemies of God come and thrust me through and abuse me. But the, his armor bearer would not, for he was so afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and, and fell upon it. Well, he, he actually uh, ended up committing uh, the act himself, not, not involving the armor bearer. Um, and so we understood he... Whether he had forced that man or whether he did it himself, we understand that the sin is, is the same. Um, nonetheless, in verse 5, we see this. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, uh, he fell likewise upon his sword. He killed himself uh, and died with him. Uh, I wonder, gentlemen, if, if you have thoughts as to why he did that. Uh, what was happening in his mind that would cause him to conclude that the best choice that he could make in that situation uh, was to take his own life. Guys, what do you think? Gentlemen, uh, do you have a thought, Zach? Uh, it was an armor bearer. That was his purpose in life. And so he saw that his purpose, he had no purpose in life. So th this man whose who's, who's job, <laughs> you know, he may have felt like this is really his, his purpose for being uh, is to protect the life of Saul, right? Uh, and if, Saul, if Saul's gone, you know, he, he might feel like his purpose is gone. And, you know, why go on if, if I have no purpose? He might have felt that way. Um, by the way, if, if you can no longer do your job or no longer do the ministry that you did when you were a younger person, do you still have purpose? Do you still have purpose? 
Zach's going like this. Uh, Rich, what would you say? Uh, do you still have purpose? What's your purpose? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're living to please the Lord and, and to serve him. And I understand that my life is not about my secular work that I've done in the past. I mean, there, we could say, yes, there's a sense in which our life is about our ministry. But certainly the Lord understands that uh, as we uh, progress through life and, uh, and age, the ministry that we can do, that's going to change over time. If you, if you look back into the Old Testament at the, the, the rules around the priesthood and the age at which a priest could come into that office uh, was specified, the Lord also specified the age at which they would retire. And that didn't mean they didn't have purpose anymore, it just meant that uh, their purpose, their, their function in life, how they were going to serve uh, was going to change. And so I think we do, we do well to keep this in mind as we age, yes, what we can do practically in terms of secular work or ministry work, that's going to change necessarily, but we still have great purpose. We can still find uh, a way to serve. And even if we can't, if we don't have the physical ability any longer to, to lift a finger or, or to do whatever we think we want to, we can still pray. <laughs> we can still pray. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's great power in that and great purpose in that. Uh, did you did your hand go up? Did you want to say something? Say it, please. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. No, Gary's making a very good point. There, there's a struggle because you, as much as we kind of would all agree, I think, that what I'm saying is true, doesn't feel that way sometimes, right? You, you mourn the loss of what you used to be able to do. Uh, you mourn the loss of, of what you had hoped to do. Um, but I always, I always come back to this, and I, I encourage everybody to, to really hear this and, and try to take it in. Um, if, if God does not give you the ability to do something, it's not what he wants you to do. Amen? If, if God does not give you the ability to do something, it is not what he wants you to do at a certain point in your life. And, and so, you know, if, if we are struggling and yet we have to, we should stop and pray and say, Lord, uh, help, help conform my will at this stage of my life to your will for this stage of my life. Uh, I think it's, it's fine to mourn what you had hoped to do or what the loss of what you used to do. I, I think that's fine because you, you could legitimately miss that, right? And there could be some grief about not being able to do in the future what you had hoped to do in the future for the Lord. But I, I, so you think you do that, you, you mourn that, and then you say, well, okay, Lord, um, I've mourned that. Now, now help me just to focus my attention on what you have for me at this stage of my life and to be excited about that, just as excited about whatever that is as I was in the past or what I'd hoped to do in the future. Lord, help me to be focused on, on what you have for me now and uh, whatever it is. Maybe it's prayer, more prayer than I've ever prayed in my whole life. Maybe it's writing notes or calling folks and encouraging people. Uh, whatever it is, whatever it is, I think we do well just say, Lord, help me to be content uh, with however you want me to serve uh, now. I think if we you know, continue to struggle with that, there, we, we, we do well to ask God to examine our hearts. Am I being prideful that I can't do what I want to do? 
Lord, when I know I can still do what you want me to do? That's a good question. It's a good diagnostic question to ask ourselves. So, Zach, yeah, I think that was a long response to what you said. But, yeah, I mean, this, this man might have felt like his purpose was lost, and therefore uh, he couldn't go on. Of course, he's wrong. He's probably a fairly young man, and to make this choice at this stage in life because Saul's gone is, you know, obviously a sinful choice. Um, he may just be fearful, right? Uh, he may see that Israel has suffered, a, a, is in the process of suffering a great defeat. Uh, so three of Saul's four sons are dead. Uh, Saul is dead. He may assume, hey, I, I'm likely to be next, so let me make the same decision uh, that Saul did. By the way, when people commit suicide, sometimes it sparks other suicides. You, you've, you've no doubt seen that in the news over the years. And uh, you know, that, that may have put this idea into the, this man's head. Um, he may have been fearful. He may have simply been fearful. Um, what's, what's the answer to that? Well, pray, right? He, he could have just bowed down and prayed and said, Lord, uh, I'm afraid. You know, we're suffering this defeat. So many so close to me are dead. Our leader is dead. Our king is dead. Lord, I'm afraid. Show me what to do. Protect me. Uh, give me strength. Give me boldness to do whatever you would have me to do. Uh, you know, we have to do the same thing, obviously, uh, or it's not very likely any of us are going to find ourselves in this exact situation, but, uh, you know, something like this where we're afraid and we feel like we can't go on. You could make the decision, the sinful decision this man made, or you could step back, take a deep breath, get down on your knees and pray, Lord, I'm afraid. Help me. Give me courage. Show me what to do uh, and go on in the Lord's strength. Um, Verse 5, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword, died with him. So Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer, all his men that same day uh, together. Uh, it seems like um, Israel, sort of the men of Israel in that region, sort of surrounding the battlefield, begin to get a sense of how things are going. They, uh, they probably have heard now what, what has happened with Saul and uh, there, there's a fear in, in all of this, and they flee. Verse 7, when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley, uh, and they that were on uh, the other side, Jordan, saw the men of Israel fled, and that Saul, um, they fled. Saw the men of Israel that fled. Um, they, they, they flee away. They're, they're afraid. They saw that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook their cities uh, and fled. They packed up their stuff, and they got out of their cities, uh, the territory that God had given them when they entered into the promised land. They, they look out and they see what's happening and uh, they just pack up and run. They forsook their cities and fled and the Philistines came uh, and dwelt in them. Rich, what, what should these folks have done? What should they have done? The, uh, you know, people in the surrounding towns and villages and cities see that the Philistines uh, appear to be having a victory. What could they do other than run away? Yeah, begin praying. A ask God for help. Seek, seek His His will, His way, uh, His protection. Uh, I I believe that if these men had cried out to the Lord with humble repentance, that. Uh, the Lord likely would have intervened here uh, eventually, if, if not immediately. Maybe he would allow them to suffer some losses as part of the judgment that he's meeting out here in this chapter. But I think the, the primary focus is on Saul and, uh, and, and God's judgment and, and, and justice upon Saul and, and his sin. So 
I, I think these men would have certainly done better to stop and, and cry out to the Lord than to simply cry and, and, and run away fearfully. And it's easy for, for you know, us to say some thousands of years after the fact, uh, I know, Gary, that it, you know, they, they probably felt like there's no other choice they could make. As, you know, they see Philistine armies approaching. They, they hear Saul and his sons are dead and the armies are approaching. They probably think, we need to get out of here. And, um, there may have been some degree of wisdom and sort of a strategic retreat away from the uh, approaching enemy, but you, you, boy, you, you wish you could see some prayer uh, and some indication that the Lord is directing a strategic retreat rather than just running off in fear. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Got a little cough tonight. The Philistines uh, find Saul and his sons, and they're very happy, of course, to uh, treat Saul as he feared he would be treated. Uh, verse 8, it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came uh, to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. Gilboa. Cut off his head. Uh, it's terrible. Um, they cut off his head. Uh, Zach, didn't uh, David do that in his victory uh, against Goliath also? And so it seems like uh, this was a thing. Uh, it seems like this was, uh, I don't know if tradition is the right word or not, but a practice that sometimes was practiced um, in, in a time of, uh, of a great victory. Uh, there was a, sort of a trophy taking uh, of the head. Now, in this case, they cut off his head, then they took his head and his body. Uh, they cut off his head uh, and stripped off his armor uh, and sent it into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it uh, in the house of their idols. Um, the account, the parallel account in First Chronicles says it's, it's Dagon, the house of Dagon, you remember him, uh, to publish it in the house of their idols uh, and among the people. Cut off his head and, and, and sent it on a tour uh, throughout Philista uh, as a celebration of their victory against Saul uh, and, and the Israelites. It's, it's horrible, needless to say. Verse 10, they put his armor in the house of Eshroth, um, serving their God, uh, and they face, fastened, forgive me, they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Uh, Beth Shan was a city on the edge of the western side of the Jordan River Valley. Um, they, they did all they could to just uh, treat Saul as badly as they could, even after uh, he was defeated and deceased. Um, they, they just wanted to celebrate this uh, in this most cruel way, uh, and so they do. Well, the Israelites get wind of this, Mike. They they hear about Saul's body and his head and his armor being paraded about. And uh, they go and say, well, we're not going to tolerate that. We're going to retrieve uh, the body of our king uh, and his sons. And I think there's, there's honor in that. Uh, again, you'd like to see that they've prayed and God has said, yes, you may go. And I will permit you to accomplish that. I don't see that. But... Nonetheless, I, I think there's some honor in their decision here. When the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard, this is verse 11, of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men, the, the, the bold, courageous men, arose and went all night. They traveled all night, took the body of Saul, captured it back, and the bodies of his sons from the wall, uh, Beth Shan, uh, came to Jabesh and burnt them there. 
Uh, and they took their bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Um, is there anything, I was going to say if there's, is there anything surprising there? Well, I think it's all surprising, right, Mike? Uh, the fact that they had to go and get Saul's head and his body and the son's bodies and uh, all, body that was, you know, nailed up on a wall, that's all surprising. But uh, is there anything else that strikes you as a little bit surprising here in, in this verse? Um, Zach, anything at all there? Maybe not. Andrew? Well, yeah, if we understand it, if that's how we understand it, the, uh, the fact that the language here implies strongly that uh, the bodies were burned. This, this would not be a normal Jewish practice. This was not uh, a normal tradition. And, and we've made that observation many times. You've heard me say many times over the years that the typical biblical method of, of burial is just that. It's burial. It's not burning of bodies. And that normally the only place that you would expect to see bodies being burned would be as part of occultic worship. And it's on that basis that we, we discourage people from, from choosing cremation. Of course, the Lord can resurrect a cremated body as easily as one that's not been cremated, but um, it's, it's really based on that observation, at least primarily based on that observation, that we, we discourage uh, cremation. And yet here you find um, the suggestion at least that the men of Jabesh-Gilead burned the body of Saul uh, and, and the three sons. Well, there's a couple of views here on this. Uh, one is that they did exactly what the language, our English King James, implies, uh, that they burned the bodies. And uh, it's, it's um, some, some theories about that. Uh, there might have been a fear that um, if the Philistines could, they had come and dig up the bodies and just mistreat them all over again. They've been pretty wicked in their treatment of Saul and deceased Saul and his deceased three sons. So there might have been a concern that, hey, if we, don't, if, if we don't completely destroy these bodies, they're going to find the graves and, and dig them up and, and just continue to be the same kind of wicked that they have been. Uh, and so they may have felt that burning the bodies was a way to discourage uh, that sort of continued uh, mistreatment. That, that's a possibility. Um, I don't know that... Um, that's the case or not, but it's a possibility. Um, there's another thought. Um, Dr. Sorensen and others have said, well, sure enough, we know what it says here, but something else may be uh, implied. Turn um, back, if you would, uh, or forward, I should say, to Second, um, Second Chronicles chapter 16. Second Chronicles chapter 16. If you would just go there real fast. We won't stay there long. There's a couple of places in the Old Testament where when kings, were, uh, when kings died, uh, there were fires that were burned as, not, not as a um, funeral pyre, um, but uh, more as a tribute or an expression of sorrow or, or as a tribute. You see this at least twice um, in the Old Testament where that is very clear. Second Corinthians 16, in uh, verse 14, this is the burial of, of Asa. Uh, well, look back at verse 13. Asa slept with his fathers, King Asa, 
and, and died in the one and fortieth year of his reign. And they buried him, verse 14. They buried him in his own sepulcher. That's sepulchers. That's what you would expect. Uh, which he had made for himself, the city of David, and, and laid him in the bed which was filled with sweet odors and uh, diverse kinds of spices prepared by the apothecary's art. Uh, and let's see the end of the verse here. This is interesting. Uh, and they made a very great, what? What does it say? Burning for him. Doesn't say they burned him up. It says they buried him. And they made a very great burning for him. And that, that implies, this, this language is more like there was some kind of like tribute fire or something like that. See that one other place, and I, we won't take time to look at it, but if you want to make a note, Second Chronicles 21 and verse 19, uh, when wicked king Jehoram died, um, there was, the Bible says his people made no uh, burning for him like the burning of his father's. And so there's, there's a reference there to uh, fires having been sort of typically burned uh, as a memorial or tribute uh, when great men or, or kings or other great men died. So uh, that's interesting. And, and some have said, well, it seems like that was a tradition. And so perhaps that is what's being alluded to back here uh, in 1 Samuel 31. Mike, I, I would be the first to admit that the, the language pretty clearly indicates that they burn the bodies. Um, and so I think we do well to not ignore that, but uh, it, it may indicate that sure enough they burn the bodies or it may be an allusion to this other burning of fires kind of tribute or memorial fires that we can see in other parts of the Old Testament. Um, it's just an interesting thought nonetheless we would do well to take care to not look at this language and say, well, you know, here's Saul, he's, he's God's king. Uh, he was cremated, and so, you know, cremation is perfectly fine. I, I, would, I would caution against making that conclusion based on this passage. I, I, it's clearly not um, the normal practice of the Jewish people in the Old Testament um, and I, I would say, I would argue that you know, we, we could make a case, it, it's not God's will. It is more commonly associated with burning of bodies as part of false worship of idols. And so we, we keep that in mind. Um, look back, please, at, at verse 13. Um, verse 13 is the final verse. They took, they took, and they took their bones and buried them. So they... Uh, whether they burned the bodies and just had bones left or not, they took the bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh uh, and fasted uh, for seven days. And so uh, this is the end of Saul's life. Um, I want to ask you to turn just over real fast to um, the beginning of 2 Samuel. Look, look here in 2 Samuel, please. Um, in 2 Samuel, David is getting uh, news of, of the death of Saul and Jonathan and two of Jonathan's brothers. And there's an Amalekite who's giving this information to David. And if you look here in verse 10, that man, this Amalekite who's communicating the news to David, he says this to David, 2 Samuel verse 10. He says, so I stood upon him, I stood upon Saul, uh, and slew him 
because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and had brought them hither unto my Lord. So this man, this Amalekite, comes to David and says, hey, I just want to let you know David is dead. I know for sure because I killed him uh, and I got some of his stuff here. Um, is there a problem? Why might some people say this is a problem with Scripture? It's, yeah, on its face, there's a conflict there because at the end of 1 Samuel, the Bible very plainly says that Saul fell on his own sword, uh, and that's how he died. Uh, right here in the, next, the very next chapter of Scripture, you've got an Amalekite man coming and saying, hey, I stood upon him and I killed him. Uh, I, um, where is it? I stood upon him and slew him. Uh, I slew him. I killed him. Well, there is conflict there. There is conflict. Um, and this is one of those places where people will point and say, look, your Bible is flawed. You've got two accounts that cannot be reconciled. Uh, and so uh, right here in back-to-back -back chapters, there's an inconsistency that should cause you uh, to question at least these chapters. And if these chapters aren't reliable and can't be trusted, you know, how could you possibly trust any of the Bible, uh, including the passages that deal with Christ and uh, the way of salvation and Christ being the only way? And you know, they'll take something like this and, and, and try to use it as a point of leverage to tear down the entire Bible. Do we have that kind of a problem here? Zach says, no, I agree. Um, Zach, if we don't have that kind of problem here, there must be some way to reconcile these two accounts. Um, different ways have been suggested. Do you have one? Go ahead. Did you hear what Gary said? Gary said maybe the Amalekite's telling a story that's not true. Uh, maybe he's trying to garner favor with David because he knows... He probably knew or had heard that uh, Saul was after David. Now Saul's gone. And uh, what, what a thrill it would be for David to meet the man that killed Saul. Uh, and, and David would probably be very appreciative and inclined to convey some reward to this man. So that, that's a possibility. Zach, you had another thought or the same thought? Yeah, so I think there's, there's that possibility also. I, I think there's, there's room here to say that, well, let's go back. Where, which verse is it where Saul falls on his sword? Um, Draw thy sword, thrust me through. Um, verse 5, oh, uh, but his armor bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and, and fell on it. Uh, and verse 5 says, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead. So... Your theory is that this Amalekite, I mean, these guys were close enough to hit Saul with arrows. So they were pretty close, right? They weren't, they weren't a half a mile away. They were close enough to hit him with arrows. And they could have been excellent uh, archerists. Is that the right word? Archers. But still, they would have to be very close. So there is, 
certainly room here between verse 4 and 5 for this Amalekite to come upon Saul and thrust him through. That is, that is a distinct possibility. It, it fits. Um, and so right there you have two very reasonable ways that these two, <laughs> what might be viewed as two separate accounts, just, just in a couple of minutes we've got two very plausible theories about how uh, chapter 31 and chapter 1 can be reconciled. And I think if we stopped and thought about it, there, there's probably other ways that you could reconcile them. But um, this, is, this is another example of an inc uh, alleged inconsistency that people will point to and say, well, there, there you go. There, there you have it. The Bible's got to be uh, in error uh, in one or both places. And that's just not the case. We, we can, in, in a minute or two, um, come up with different ways that both passages, both verses, uh, can be true and fit. Praise God. Uh, praise God. I don't know um, which of those theories is most likely to be true. I rather suspect that this Amalekite is lying. I rather suspect he's lying. But, Zach, your theory is plausible, certainly. It's certainly uh, plausible. Um, so before we, before we stop, I want us to uh, just consider again for a moment uh, Saul's life and the lessons from it. Mike, he started out well, looked to be pretty close to the Lord. Uh, God allowed him to be the first king of his people. God allowed Samuel to anoint him. Uh, God raised him up, chose him, and he started out pretty well. He starts to have some victories. He seems to get conceited. I think that was the thing. Uh, he starts to make his own choices uh, rather than holding fast to God's choices. Uh, remember, um, uh, early on, there was that account where he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and make the offering, right? And he became very impatient and made the offering himself. That was a in direct contradiction to what Samuel had said he should do, and in direct contradiction contradiction to God's word. Uh, not just any man, no no non Levite would be permitted to uh, serve in the role of a priest. So that that was blatantly, objectively contrary to God's word. And you know, and all the pursuit of David and attempting to murder him and all of that, that clearly uh, Saul got to a place where his own desires and his own agenda became more important than the Lord's desires, the Lord's agenda. That's a problem. That's a problem. Um, Zach, what's at the root of that? What's at, the, what's at the very root of that kind of a heart? Don't you think? We can just always say pride, right? Every time you get a question like that, you just say pride. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he willfully chose to do what he desired. He could say, well, I didn't think Samuel was coming. Or, you know, he did say that, right? He said, I've got to do it. Samuel didn't show up. Well, he didn't wait long enough. <laughs> he didn't wait. He wasn't patient. Uh, Rather than being patient, he chose to be prideful and, and do his own thing. There always will be an excuse for disobeying the Lord. 
I, let me say that differently. There will always be an explanation for disobeying the Lord, but there will never be a valid excuse. Amen? There will always be an explanation. You, if you've disobeyed a clear uh, portion of, of the Word of God, you, you'll have an explanation for that. But there will never be an excuse that validates that explanation or legitimizes it or makes it okay in God's eyes. Just never. Uh, it's pride. It, it's pride. And uh, you just have to say, Lord, Lord, help me to stand guard uh, against, against my pride. Um, I want to ask you, and we should have done this before, forgive me. Just turn back to 1 Chronicles uh, real fast. 1 Chronicles chapter 10 and verse 13. Should have done this a minute ago. Um, I don't want to miss this, so let's go ahead and go back here for a minute. 1 Chronicles chapter 10. Uh, and, and verse 13. So 1 Samuel through 2 Kings are chronological. First uh, and Second Chronicles basically overlap much of the same chronology, but with more of a focus on Judah after the kingdoms divide. That's, that's how they relate to each other. But here in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, chapter 10 of 1 Chronicles is essentially the same, it records essentially the same details as our passage from tonight. It is essentially identical um, to 1 Samuel chapter 31. Um, it does have some different details. I mentioned Dagon uh, here in 1 Chronicles 10.10. 10, they put his armor in the house of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. So you get a little bit more detail in some cases. Uh, and a little bit more detail about why the Lord exactly why the Lord chose to, uh, art not just allow, but chose to slay Saul. Uh, look here in verse 13. So it's 1 Chronicles 10, 13. Um, Bible says, so Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord. He willfully disobeyed God's word in choosing to perform uh, as a priest um, there and perhaps other places as well. Uh, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not. And also, there's another reason here, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it. Uh, he did that, right? He went to the, the woman of Endor, the woman with the familiar spirit, the witch of Endor, if you will. And uh, wasn't he surprised when <laughs> the Lord allowed Samuel to be brought up? Uh, verse 14, and inquired not of the Lord. So God said, listen, you, you, you disobeyed me by a number of ways. You disobeyed my word a number of ways. We think stepping in the office of priest would be probably the thing that is pointed to there first. But then also in consulting a, a familiar spirit, a demon, instead of consulting the Lord, verse 14. This is the second major thing uh, that's emphasized here. Uh, he chose... Uh, to go to the occult rather than to the Lord for counsel, for advice. Mike, this is a, I mean, I, I remain shocked by it, but I know that people fall into that same trap today. People do consult all sorts of things, even Christians sometimes, uh, whether it's astrology or um, 
trying to think of other examples. I mean, hopefully Christians aren't getting caught up in tarot cards, but all, all sorts of occultic practices that we have no business <laughs> touching, but uh, sometimes do strain of those things. You, you gotta look here and see that uh, the Lord wants us consulting him, <laughs> praying to him and asking and see, searching his words and seeking his will. Uh, rather than the occult. Uh, Saul is slain by the Lord for his disobedience, which includes seeking uh, a demon, seeking a familiar spirit rather than seeking the Lord. Uh, therefore, middle of verse 14, uh, he, the Lord, slew him Saul and turned the kingdom of David, uh, un, sorry, and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. So um, yeah, it's important that we not miss that verse. And I'm sorry, I meant to, I meant to review that earlier. Um, I want to I wanna stop and just um, ask guys, once again, if I may, um, this first, first book of 1 Samuel is focused largely on Saul. Obviously, David factors into it along the way, but it's focused largely on Saul, uh, his life, and, and his reign. What are some lessons that we can take from it? What are some lessons? What are some lessons? Guys? Got a lesson? You got a lesson? Andrew? I say again, I'm sorry. Trust the Lord. Yeah. Uh, and when you can't trust him, what can you do? Pray. Lord, help me trust you. Yeah. God knows that we struggle to trust him at times. Of course he knows that. Um, and he's also ready to answer a prayer like, Lord, I know I should trust you, but man, I'm struggling. Would you help me to trust you? Marilyn, don't you, don't, you just know that that's a prayer God would love to answer, right? God, I'm, I gotta be honest. I, I confess I'm struggling to trust you, but would you help me? God, I'm gonna come and confess that. Would you help me to put off the distrust and, and put on trust? And you know God's gonna be thrilled uh, to answer a prayer like that. So yeah, trust the Lord. Amen. Amen. Zach, you had a thought? Stay humble in your victories. Everybody get that? Stay humble in your victories. Yeah, God will give victories, uh, but let's give him the credit for giving the victory. I know that he used us to uh, achieve that victory, but you know, God is the one who gives victories. God is the one who gives us life, any ability we have, any talent we have, any strength that we have, any wisdom that we have. Brother, everything we have is from him, right? So any victories we have belong to the Lord. Uh, yeah, Zach, say it again, please. How did you say it? Stay humble in your victories. Um, I, I really believe that it's when Saul had those, the series of quick military victories Right on the heels of that is when you see him falling down. And so, I, yeah, I think he got prideful in the victories. And if he, if he had quickly confessed that, Lord, I got prideful. I, I, you know, uh, I confess that. It, it, help, me not to, help me not to go there again. Gary. Right. I've come to the conclusion that, that even in the Bible, 
Yeah, amen. Yeah, amen. I, I appreciate that thought. So, so what the thought Gary offered is that some of these apparent inconsistencies or what arguably might be inconsistencies, uh, the Lord may have included them, as he did, um, to encourage us to just walk in faith. Yeah, I can look at something like this and say, um, I don't know exactly how chapter 31 and chapter 1 are reconciled. I don't know exactly how they fit together. I don't know exactly how they, they're both true. Right? I could say that. And tonight we, we developed some theories that are plausible, but at the end of the day, I don't know. I don't know which theory is correct, but I do know that there's not an inconsistency because we walk in faith. Amen? We walk in faith that this is an accurate translation of, of God's inspired and preserved words, and we know that it's without error. We just, we know that. The Lord has, has, has shown us that in our hearts, and hey, if it looks on the surface like there's a problem, uh, I'm going to try to reconcile that by comparing Scripture with Scripture and, you know, employing the intellectual faculties that God has given me, but if at the end of the day I just can't see a plausible uh, way to reconcile an apparent inconsistency. I'm going I'm to step back and say, God, you know what? I'm not going to worry about that because you're God and I'm not, and I know that you're perfect and your word is perfect, and perhaps you're just challenging me to trust you that somehow, some way, these things can be reconciled. I think that's a great thought. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, David Cloud has a pretty thick book. It's called um, Things Hard to Be Understood, and it's a catalog of, of difficulties, Bible, Bible difficulties. And, and he says, listen, I'm not going to run away from these things. I'm going to catalog them. I'm going to seek them all out, put them in a book, and, and, and offer plausible solutions to what you know, people have pointed to and said that these are problems. He says, you know, they're, they're not problems because in every case, there's a plausible solution. And, and Gary, you just have to walk in faith and say, yeah, there is. And there's no problem. Um, I have, uh, I have um, two books. They're, they're basically practical overviews of the Old Testament and then the New Testament. And um, the author, uh, I can't think of his name for, right now for some reason, but uh, in almost every book, he'll have a page or two that deals rich with these attacks. Because, you know, critics will say this and this and this about this book, but you know what? Here's a plausible explanation. Here's a plausible explanation. Here's a plausible explanation. And we don't know if it's the right explanation or not, but it's, it's certainly plausible. And, you know, critics have to answer that. If they're going to say that's an excuse uh, to ignore the word of God, you have to answer my plausible explanation and they can't they can't but we can we can always find plausible explanations and we walk in faith right i mean you you're struggling today right because god has just given you faith that his word is his word and 
if it looks like there's a problem, the problem is really in our mind, not in God's mind. And uh, by the way, why else might God allow apparent inconsistencies or things that might look inconsistent on their face at first glance? Why else might the Lord have included those things because he put every word there quite intentionally, right? And he's preserved every word quite intentionally, including these so-called problems. Uh, one reason might be to just cause us to walk in faith, to choose that, right? But, but why else? Uh, why else? Why else might God have intentionally built in these difficulties? Zach, do you have a thought? That's exactly what I was thinking, to encourage us to study to encourage us to study, yeah. Because when you're wrestling through those difficulties, you're gonna learn a lot, right? You're wrestling with something that requires you to look at different books and compare scripture with scripture. Um, using the tools that we have, I included one tool in the email today, which is actually very helpful and good. Um, yeah, you're, if, if you're gonna commit to really studying that out, you're gonna learn a lot. And um, as, as you do, you'll be exposed to a lot of scripture and you know, you're, you're bathing your mind in scripture and, and you'll benefit from that and God will be glorified in that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Any, any other thoughts about why God might allow those things? I don't have another one, but... Um, yeah. Well, amen. Uh, thank you, Lord, for First Samuel. Uh, dealing primarily with Saul's reign. Second Samuel will deal primarily with David's reign. One thing I want to do is, as we travel further through Second Samuel is try to bring in uh, references to a lot of the Psalms and try to marry up um, the timing of the writing of the Psalms to likely places within the history we see in Second Samuel. So we'll, we'll try to bring those in and it's admittedly difficult to be certain about some of those things, but uh, we'll, we'll try to, where we can, make reasonable guesses at least about how some part of Second Samuel fits with the timing of the Psalms. We'll, we'll try to bring that in along the way. I think that'll be a help and just kind of help us understand the Psalms a little bit better too. So um, let's stop there. I'm gonna pray. Zach, you come and um, Sing, lead us, please. I forgot what the next number is. It's up there, 361. Okay, I'll pray you come. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for book for Samuel and all that we've seen. Lord, certainly a takeaway tonight is we need your help to trust you. Father, we know that tonight that you work in our hearts and you allow trials to grow our faith, which grows our trust. Lord, help us not to question you or be angry about that, but to rejoice that you know what it takes in our lives to grow our faith, to grow our trust in you. Lord, when our faith wobbles, when our trust wobbles, I pray that you would urge us in our spirits to quickly confess that, to bring that to you as a prayer request, and, and Lord, to ask your grace, your strength to trust and to continue to walk in faith, knowing, Lord, that you are absolutely, perfectly trustworthy. Father, I thank you for that tonight. We have a, a perfect God who we can go to because of Christ and know that we find a God who is perfectly trustworthy.
Lord, I thank you tonight that I have that kind of access to a trustworthy God because of Christ my Savior. Lord, thank you so very much. Father, I pray as we sing now that you'll put a joy in our hearts. And Lord, as we um, turn to our prayer time, uh, lift up uh, Rafi and others tonight. Lord, I, I pray that you'll just guide us in our, in our prayer time. Lord, we do love you tonight. We thank you. We praise you. I pray all of this now in Jesus' name.